UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty turns, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, Howling in the Street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. And thank you for doing this, by the way. Uh, hey guys, welcome back to the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have a very special guest tonight, someone whose work I've been stu- I've been following since I started my podcast. I first heard about this man on uh, Lon Strickler's Beyond Explanation channel, and he really looks at like the paranormal and the esoteric sciences like from a very analytical perspective, and I really respect it. And who I'm talking about is Jack Carey. He's an investigative journalist with 30 years experience investigating all manner of paranormal phenomena, cryptozoology, and unsolved ancient mysteries. He's the author of American Sorcerer, Paranormal Planet, Bigfoot Unleashed. And the book we're going to be talking about tonight, which I'm really excited about, is The Enoch Code, Decoding the Secret Tomb of the Watchers, the Lost Secrets of the Anunnaki, and the Next Global Cataclysm. Um, it's uh, and and he's going to get more into that but i want to give him a big warm welcome to the show jack thank you for joining me how are you good thank you for having me i appreciate it so you sent me a little bit of information on this book but can you tell us what it's because it sounds like you dug up some really cool secrets here yeah you know um really it's the culmination of sort of a lifelong obsession uh, studying this mystery. And this mystery really began with what is known as the mystery of Rennes-le-Chateau. So um, there, there's a lot of people out there that aren't aware of that mystery. It became known to the public through a book uh, that was published called Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And it's the mystery of some parchments that were discovered during the renovation of a uh, very small parish uh, in the countryside of south of France. And these parchments uh, basically lead into this big mystery of what appears to be people who thought, um, among much bigger secrets, that they were somehow guarding this lost bloodline of Christ um, through the ancient. French uh, or uh, Frankish royal lineage of the Merovingian kings, um, which is fascinating in and of itself. But deeper than that is a much bigger mystery that I uncovered um, while I was investigating the mystery of Rennes-le-Chateau. And there were many, many different indications that the mystery was far deeper and more esoteric than just the bloodline uh, of Jesus Christ, what they believe to have been uh, through Mary Magdalene, the lost bloodline of Christ. And really that the figures of Jesus and Mary were sort of uh, overlaid on top of a much bigger mystery that was taking place. Um, And that's what I call the Enoch Code. And this stretches all the way back into uh, as far back as ancient Samaria, as far back as uh, the interaction with what they referred to as the Anunnaki. And, you know, there, there are, as we discussed at one point, detractors to, uh, to Sitchin's different, uh, you know, translations of the tablets. But the truth is, is that almost every scholar agrees that those tablets contain within them very early versions of the biblical stories that were later, you know, uh, encapsulated in the Bible. And chief among those is the story of Utnapishtim, which later becomes the biblical Noah. 
And this led me into the book of Enoch. And <clears throat> the book of Enoch is something I don't know if a lot of people are aware of the book of Enoch. A lot of people aren't. It appears to be a book of the Bible that was sort of left out. Um, we say this because, uh, well, in 1947 at Qumran, where they discovered Dead Sea Scrolls, they found nine separate copies of the Book of Enoch. So we know, <clears throat> and Qumran was a place where a lot of scholars believe Jesus trained, right? And so we know um, because there were more copies of this text than any other that it must have held more importance to them than any other. And it became lost over time and was uh, rediscovered strangely enough, by a direct lineal descendant of Robert the Bruce. Um, and he found it in a church in Axiom in Ethiopia. Oh, One copy, yeah, <clears throat> that he was able to translate. Now, the book of Enoch tells the much the full story of uh, the verse in Genesis 6-4, where it talks about the Nephilim who came from the sky, who interbred with human women and had offspring by them. This is exactly what Sitchin really, you know, overall was saying in his translations. And we find this in an ancient, in fact, it's the oldest Jewish writing ever discovered. Is it so, really? I never knew yeah. that. Like, <clears throat> yeah, and... Um, you know, in the book of Enoch, it talks about the, you know, these fallen beings that they refer to as the Nephilim, and um, how these beings taught them, uh, you know, secrets that they weren't supposed to teach them, that they interbred with humans and produced a line of offspring. This is really a, an echoing of the story of the Anunnaki in ancient Samaria, who genetically manipulated humanity, somewhat like interbreeding with them, who produced a lineage, and who uh, adherents, Inky and his wife, Nenkarsag, were, um, you know, basically caught defying orders by allowing them, you know, introducing the genes necessary for them to reproduce, etc. for those who are familiar with, you know, such as translations. So you're seeing, you know, a it's the Semitic version in the book of Enoch that you find in the Sumerian tablets. And I just and, want to say something too. It's not just Sitchin. It's um, if you look up like Austin, Austin Henry Laird and um, George <laughs> Smith, like I have the Chaldean account of the Genesis behind me, but right. written by George Smith in 1870, he was saying stuff about these gods too. And so was Austin Henry Laird. And Billy Carson talks about this too, that there was these researchers. So it kind of goes a little bit against like what Jason from Archaic says. Like he, go, he, I think he uses different people who trans for different translations. And I, I think that's what you're going to get with different researchers. You're going to get different people who study different translations, right? Right. Sure. Sure. And um, you know, it's it's interesting how different people piece different things together. Um, but here in the Book of Enoch. Not only do you uh, discover that Enoch, this character, this figure, uh, is the preferred figure of the so-called what he calls the Watchers, uh, a very ominous, a very scary name he uses, the Watchers, and it's used over and over again, right? And they basically communicated to Enoch, and he communicated with everybody else but he describes you know being taken up in one of their craft he describes uh there's the book of giants where he describes the offspring uh that came about through this you know genetic interaction with what apparently was a non-human intelligence and uh i believe that that's you know their telling of the early sumerian tales of the anunnaki just like we have the earlier biblical tales in those tablets. And, <clears throat> right. And so this interaction, and it says there were 200 of them, 
I believe, and they were cast down onto Mount Armon, it says, right? <clears throat> cast down by their leadership. And this is the, the origin of the so-called fallen angel mythos. But when you look at, you know, the Sumerian tablets, they, they you know, roughly say the same thing that, uh, you know, Inki and his wife Ninkarsag created the first what was called an Adamu, which was, you know, where the word Adam comes from, was the first human clone. And they did it by, um, according to the tablets, inseminating an early hominid female that was found on this planet with sperm from her husband, Inky, who was one of two Anunnaki princes. I mean, there was Inky and there was Enlil. They were put down on the earth to basically be in charge of the mining operations. You know and, what that, I wanted to say, do you know what always interested me about, and that's in the Atrahasis, by the way, and, and it's not just Sitchin, this is like a lot of different translators translated this tablet the same way, so we're not just talking Sitchin here, I just want to back you up on that. And what's so interesting, what I always thought in the Atrahasis, it talks about that they use the clay from the earth too. Do you think that's a metaphor for something? <clears throat> they actually use clay from the earth. No, I, I do think that's a metaphor for them basically taking what was here on the earth and creating, you know, all kinds of life forms, actually. But I think it was basically the, the genetics that were already here on the planet. And, uh, you know, it, it talks about them creating all kinds of hybrid animals. Chimeras, too? Right, chimera species, which may end up relating to modern-day cryptid sightings, which we'll get into. But Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so it stretches that far back. In fact, in the tale of Utnapishtim, which is the tale of Noah, there's a, a, a character named Enkidu, which fits perfectly our description of Bigfoot. Seven foot tall, covered in long red hair, wild man of the forest. I mean, it's all right there in these, you know, ancient tablets. Enkidu's uh, Gilgamesh's buddy, right? Right, right. Gilgamesh, yeah. In the tale of Gigglemouth. So it's fascinating that you go that far, you know, possibly go that far back. And they 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 battle um Huma Baba and the Cedars of Lebanon or something like that, right? right. He's like some weird kind of like I don't even know what. But what's so interesting is that the Sumerians had enough intelligence to tell these stories the way they did back then, because like if we were so uncivilized back then, how would they put these things together? And how would they have the knowledge of the stars and everything? And my only two explanations for this is that we had civilizations upon civilizations before this and cataclysms happened. And I'm sure that's what we're going to get into with this. And, or um, the Anunnaki taught them everything. It could be either one. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, I think that it, it's basically a combination of both. I think that when the Anunnaki were here, they established a, a number of kingdoms. So like when when the 200 were cast down, I think that directly relates to Inki and then Karsag uh, defying an order. And when that deceit was discovered, uh, which is in the book of Enoch, they teach Noah how to survive this flood that's being engineered to wipe out the offspring of the Nephilim, the offspring of these Anunnaki, right? That bred with these human women. And they teach Noah, who is a direct, in the Bible, he's a direct lineal descendant of Enoch, who has this special relationship uh, with these watchers. Um, and I believe that that deceit was discovered. It's fascinating because the birth of Noah is described in the book of Enoch. And when he's born, they describe light coming out of his eyes and that he was able to speak at birth, fully speak. Um, and his father, um, Lamech. Methuselah, right? Was his father named Methuselah? No, that was Lamech's father. So, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, so Noah's... Uh, parents were Lamech and a, and a woman named Bitanosh. Bitanosh literally means daughter of man. <clears throat> That's interesting because it says daughters of men in the Bible, right? And Lamech comes back and here's this strange kid and he's been away a long time and he knows he didn't impregnate her with this kid. And he says, you know, he goes to Methuselah, his father, and he's like, what am I going to do? This appears to be uh, one of the offspring of the watchers. 
And his father, Methuselah, says, well, I'll go ask, uh, you know, Enoch, my father, which was, you know, Lamech, because Enoch was close to them and would know the answer. And he goes to Enoch and he asks him about Noah. And Enoch says, ah, you know, never mind that. Noah will be unto you a savior. So he knew about this, uh, you know, secret that Noah had been was going to be the one to, that definitely was going to survive the flood. It turns out, you know, there were different groups around the world who survived this global cataclysm, this global flood that occurred. But this particular bloodline, going back to Enoch, I believe actually stretches all the way to Enki and to Nenkarsag. Do you think there's a chance that Enki might have been Enoch, or do you think they were two different people? I think they were two different people, but I believe that it was Enoch and his 200 followers that were cast down on Mount Armon. When their deceit was, was figured out, and they knew that he had, was plotting to keep some of these humans alive, they cast him down and his 200 followers, which I believe were probably his personal guard since birth. And, um, and those 200 followers took human wives, and this is what's being recorded. Um, now, these 200 bloodlines ended up being the royal lineages around the world. The offspring with these human women end up being what we call today the, the so-called grail bloodlines, which then again feeds back into the mystery of Rimmel Chateau. And this is where things get really fascinating. So in the mystery of Rimmel Chateau, there is a Renaissance painting that's central to the mystery. And it's a painting called The Shepherds of Arcadia. And it was written by a man named Nicholas Poussin. In one of these encoded parchments discovered in this church, it makes the statement, Nicholas Poussin holds the key. And so they, the priest who discovered this is known to have traveled to Paris, and he purchased a copy of Nicholas Poussin's The Shepherds of Arcadia. This is a painting that depicts a female shepherd next to a tomb with three male shepherds on the other side, leaning down to read the inscription. And the inscription says, et in Arcadia ego, in Latin. And it means, in Arcadia I. Uh, some people translate it to mean, in Arcadia, into Arcadia I go. Um, and in the original investigation into this mystery, there was a, a famous professor at Oxford University. His name was Professor Cornford. And he was a specialist in the ancient construction of Renaissance paintings. And the reason why is because these Renaissance painters always use sacred geometry in their paintings um, as a, you know, sort of a hidden knowledge that they had. Well, he discovers that Poussin and the Shepherds of Arcadia hit a perfect pentagram, five-pointed star. Um, and um, the authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail later discovered that around Rennes-le-Chateau are five mountain peaks that form a perfect pentagram. The odds of that occurring uh, naturally geographically are too astronomical to compute and so it leads a lot of people to believe that they are artificial in nature even though they're mountain peaks um, and were probably constructed you know a hundred thousand years ago when the Anunnaki however long they you know they were here upon the earth and um, it's fascinating because central to all of this is a letter a famous historical letter and it's called or known as the Fouquet letter and it mentions Nicholas Poussin in this letter and this letter was written by a man named Nicholas Fouquet who was the superintendent of finances for King Louis XIV of France and he wrote it to his brother and in it he's recounting a conversation that he had with Nicholas Poussin and he says this guy, Nicholas Poussin, told me a secret, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, um, that 
absolutely has to be the greatest secret in the entire world. He makes the statement that nothing now on this earth could be a better fortune nor be their equal. That's a big statement coming from a guy who's connected like he is, right, to the royal court, really the 14th. He makes the statement that uh, this secret is so important that even kings could not get this secret out of Nicholas Poussin. And also that it was possible that the secret would never, ever be rediscovered in the centuries to come. How tantalizing. He never states what that secret is. But we know that King Louis XIV had a spy who ended up reading that letter. And Nicholas Fouquet was arrested the very next day. And a lot of people believe he was the man in the Iron Mask, the famous man in the Iron Mask uh, of King Louis XIV's court. Now, Louis, King Louis, goes to absolutely no, I mean, he stops at nothing to get his hands on the painting, The Shepherds of Arcadia. And when he does, he locks it away in his private apartment at Versailles and never lets anybody look at it. Um, There are accounts of him spending long hours just staring at this painting. Somehow he knew that Nicolas Fouquet was writing about a secret that was contained in this painting that was painted by Nicolas Poussin. Now, this is where things get really fascinating. So you have the Pentagram of Mountains. Around the Pentagram of Mountains are 13 churches matching now the 13 zodiac signs because the 13th is called Ophiuchus. It's a recent one, but they knew it was coming. And when you look at the ancient, and basically it's interesting because whoever put those churches there knew about this mystery. And this mystery, you know, the people who built those churches were the Templar Knights. So, you know, this is very strange how all this gets interconnected. But um, when you, and this is where my investigation took a big turn because I recognized an anagram in Latin on that tomb in the painting that nobody had ever talked about before. And when you look at the ancient Sumerian and the Mesopotamian accounts of the Anunnaki, Inki uh, later becomes known as the first god king of Sumeria, who they also called Yah, so spelled I-A. This is the origin, many believe, of the word Yahweh, which is also very interesting, right? Um, And then when you come back and you look at Nicholas Poussin's anagram, et in Arcadia Ego, it spells out Aetego Dracaena Yah, which means I guard the dragon Yah, which means uh, basically the tomb that's located beneath this pentagram of mountains is the lost tomb of Inki. Now, that's huge. It's huge, right? So, one of these, one of the authors of the book, um, decides to to fly over the pentagram of mountains. Right? He wants to get an aerial of what's going on. And right at the center of the pentagram of mountains is a perfect triangular field. And in the triangular field is a copse of trees that just shows like a black dot on these aerial photographs. So they plan a trip and they go to the to the actual uh, you know triangular field and in the middle of this copse of trees, which they said was so thick they had to walk up a stream to get into the middle of it, was a fifteen uh, foot long ritual bathing bath structure that was built literally right into the stream and it was built in such a way that it maintained a perfect flow of water and he noticed there wasn't any leaves twigs or anything like that in it meaning it was being kept up somebody was cleaning this thing right um and when he looked at the aerial photographs he noticed in the center of the of the triangular triangular field was a giant winged serpent. 
the giant, the winged serpent inside of a triangle is the Egyptian hieroglyph for Sirius. And also the serpent links back to Anki and Thoth, right? Right, exactly. And to this sort of reptilian aspect that they've always, you know, sort of had yeah. uh, down, down through history. So, and that's what led me to write the Enoch Code and how all of that kind of, now it gets even more interesting than that because uh, later on, after you have basically the Catholic Inquisition stomp out all of this, these different occult priesthood groups who had the knowledge of this interaction, right? Uh, you have what's called the French occult revival. And there's a guy named Eliphas Levi, who was actually a Catholic priest who went by a pseudonym named Eliphas Levi, who went around and, and started collecting the remnants of all of this stuff. And um, it's fascinating because he ends up writing a, a, an entire history uh, about having collected all of this stuff. And it's sort of in this milieu of, of you know, underground occult groups and artists that were taking place in Paris at this time um, that this priest becomes intertwined with. Um, so it's, it's very, very fascinating. And slowly, I think that he came across the group of adepts that actually keep this tomb a secret. Wow, this is amazing, because this would change, this would literally change our history like that, like it would like, if, right. if it was, it was really, if it was really uncovered, it would really change history in a dramatic way, right? It would, yeah, it absolutely would. And so, also, yeah, no, man, that's what led me to the Book of Enoch. Um, I talk about how later on, there's a character named Dr. John D, who um, even sort of predates the French occult revival. John Dee was, uh, at the time, you know, the Queen's, is basically he's known as the very first British spy in, in an English royal court. And it's fascinating because, I kid you not, uh, John Dee signed his correspondences to the Queen 007. And that's where Ian Fleming actually got his 007 from for James Bond. It's a fascinating historical fact. Um, yeah. But yeah, isn't that fascinating? But John D. Uh, ends up inventing, he says he invents, what later becomes known as the Enochian language, the lost language of Enoch and the angels, the so-called fallen angels, right? And there is evidence in uh, a later group that came that are direct descendants of, of this French occult revival. And they were known as the Order of the Golden Dawn. Um, I read through their entire uh, writings, which is thick. It's like, <laughs> it's like that. And I came across a passage where they were talking about John Dee. And they said that John Dee um, during his travels in Germany was actually inducted into a group of Rosicrucians, which is an ancient mystical sect of Christianity, and that he had learned his knowledge of the Enochian language through that group. Now, John Dee's account is that he channeled these beings who gave him the language. Well, obviously, he couldn't go against his, you know, oath of secrecy in the Rosicrucian order. And so he invents this, I channeled these beings and they gave me this, you know, language intact. And what's fascinating about the Enochian language is that it was studied by two renowned philologists, people that study language structure. And they both said that it was uh, a real language that, you know, it had structure, it had syntax and that it's impossible for any person to just spontaneously invent a language well, isn't this also enochian magic too and is that what it does it does go into that which is just even more fascinating because yeah because like how can you like it show, it tells you how you can channel angels yourself but are they referring to what we would think of as fallen angels and do you think these fallen angels are the ones that were originally cast down no, I think basically what, what it does is it allows you communication with another dimension. 
I'm not sure that they're they're angels. I think they're probably more of like an alien life form of some kind. Yeah. And I say that because later on, Aleister Crowley ends up using the same uh, language and rituals and stuff, and it ends up producing effects uh, that are alien in nature, which is just bizarre. Like, but um, but There's that guy from Britain. He's like an author. I'm sure you've heard of him. I can't think of his name right now. He was, he used to do the podcast circuit. Um, uh, oh man, his name's escaping me right now. It's on the tip of my tongue, but he's a, he's very well known for magic. And, um, do you know who I'm talking about? But he, he talked about Enochian magic in, in, in particular. I, I wish I could think of his name. It's all, it's so, I, oh man, I can't, I'm sorry. It's escaping me right now, but, um, um it's i hate when that happens you know oh yeah i know it happens to me all the time but i could you know i can name a few principal experts like lawn milo duquette and um gosh uh dr christopher hyatt um i'm thinking of someone more uh like recent you know what i mean like 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 um uh, I'm trying to think of what is it, but uh, but anyway, that's where I originally heard about the Nokian magic from, and I was wondering, is so that's uh, that's just like a form of black magic too, right? It would, would be, be well, I mean, it's all a matter of perspective and how it's used. You know, it's like anything; it's like any power. You know, according to you know, as it's seen by these groups, there's groups that use these same secrets for what they consider good, and then you have groups who are destructive in nature you know yeah so what um, do, you, do you think that sigils came out of Enochian magic no sigils actually originated with a man named austin osmond spare and um austin osmond spare was actually raised in a very old european lineage of witches real witches you know and these witches or wise women, if you will, carried a lot of these ancient occult secrets that were originally taught to humanity by these Anunnaki slash watchers, these people that interacted and bred with humans. And really principal to those secrets is, is the simple knowledge that because they designed the biology of humans, they put within all humans the ability to express psychic abilities. Everybody has it. Everybody has it. And these different, you know, so-called magical practices like Anakian magic and so forth are techniques by which you can get the human body to exhibit those psychic effects. That's my take on it, right? That's so fascinating because I was, I was wondering, like, as I do research and I meditate and stuff like that, it seems like my psychic abilities are kicking in, like my intuition's off the chains lately. And I don't know if it has to do with this kind of like awakening thing we're going into and like the new age or say we're going into like 5D, you know, and, and other people think that there's just a big change going on in the world. But do you think that has anything to do with our psychic awareness raising? I, I absolutely do. And, um, you know, it, it's it's fascinating because going back to Osman, Osman Spare, for instance, he took all of the knowledge and all of the teachings that they gave him, and he condensed it all down into simple so-called sigil magic. And this is something that was then rediscovered by the CIA and their remote viewers during the Stargate program. Wow. Fascinating. They were both doing the same thing and using different vocabularies to describe the effects. That's it. I, I had it, no clue about that. The, the, the remote viewing was using sigil magic too? No, but they were using the exact same ability that you can use with sigils, right? And, and that's like so, the, the, the power of psychic um, honing in on a target, right? Like with your mind. Right, right. And see central to all of this is the ability to communicate with your subconscious mind because if you can successfully communicate with the subconscious mind it can then produce the effects that you're looking for the subconscious mind is really all powerful as far as its interconnection with reality around you it is an extremely powerful tool the problem is, is that there's a barrier and that barrier exists so that we don't create chaos at all times, right? If anything you thought about came true, it would just be total chaos. 
but that's called the liminal wall to scientists. And things like sigils are able to penetrate the liminal wall and create that, communi that communication with the subconscious mind successfully. That's exactly what they're doing in remote viewing as well. And, and it's also what they're doing in hypnosis too, right? right. I mean, either with abductees or in QHHT, yes. the, 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 the goal is to get to the subconscious mind to bring back past lives. Um, and once they're in that subconscious mind, they can communicate with the higher self and, right. and, and, or that this higher self could be our subconscious mind. And it's, it, it's all knowing, right? It, it already knows the Akashic records or whatever's out there. It, maybe. it has that, that automatic divine connection. Now, here's what all of these occult groups, a, a major secret that they discovered was that lust of result cancels out the effect. That's why sigils are used, right? So if you wrote out a, a, a statement of desire that you wanted something to happen or occur or receive, et cetera, you consciously know what that is. And when you consciously know what it is, there's all of these deliberations in your mind. Do I deserve that? Do I need it? Could it really happen? Yada, yada, yada. Goes is this on bad because like we've been right. told that witchcraft's bad so like when you're it's, doing a sigil i've done them before it's hard to get that indoctrination out of your mind too because you're right. in the back of your mind you're always it's it's in you you know what i mean even yeah. though it's it's you're no it's not bad it's still in you it's hard to explain you know what i mean right you know because we grew up in in this judeo-christian sort of society that says anything but that is bad you know what i mean yeah um but really, this is designed within us to be what it is and to aid and assist us, in my opinion. But that's where sigils come in. So you would take, like, say, this statement of desire that consciously you would know what it is. And you, let's say you erase all the vowels. You've got a sequence of letters. You take those letters and you just lay them on top of each other till you get a geometric symbol that you think is pretty. Let's say you do that 10 times with 10 different you know things and you put them in an envelope and you put them away a week later after you've forgotten which one was which and what was what you take one of those out of the envelope and you go through your meditative process on it communicating with your subconscious mind and you have now bypassed the lust of result because you don't know what it is you're communicating only that it was important at one time now, let me ask you this. Um, do you have to do you go by what like witchcraft says and activate it? Because and people, this gets a little weird. They say that some people say that you have to use either blood or no. sexual fluids to activate it. Like, <laughs> no, I'm sure no. you've heard that. That's, that's, that's crazy to talk about, but that's what I've heard. Literally, like you have no, to you know what they're trying, you know what they're trying to get at is when you cut yourself or you have a sexual orgasm, it steals the mind to a singular point of concentration during a singular point of concentration if you're looking at a sigil you will actually make that contact with the subconscious mind but you can just as easily do it through meditational practices so you know they say there are two ways to make the connection one is to make yourself still like water and the other is to make yourself inflamed like fire those people are choosing to make themselves inflamed like fire to make that communication. Other people just use simple, quiet meditation to make the communication with their subconscious mind. I'm going to try the way you said, and I, that, I, I think that's a good idea to like do a couple of different sigils and put them away and then bring them back out in a week and that right. won't know which one's which. And that takes right. away the, what you said, the result of lot, the lust of result because and then it, meditate on that sigil and see if it works i think that's a really good yeah. plan it is and you know over time you learn to just enjoy the process yeah right? you can like listen to music and draw a sigil right. it's just like you just enjoy it. exactly you enjoy the process and not what it's going to get you yeah. and that's really bypassing the lust of result then you really start seeing amazing effects take place you know what i mean this is fascinating so, what i wanted to ask you was um well, well getting back to your book um i know you talk about the next global cataclysm too is that a thing and you do you write about that and how can we trace that i do so it appears as though and a lot of this was uh 
chronicled and recounted in, in the book called Hamlet's Mill. So these researchers discovered that in every ancient culture around the world, there were the same sequence of numbers. No matter what the story was, the numbers stayed the same. For instance, you can go to like the, uh, you know, the ancient Viking sagas. And then it talks about, you know, a certain number of warriors in Valhalla and a certain number of, you know, did this and did this. That same sequence of numbers is repeated again and again in oral mythologies, no matter what the story. So you can cast the story away, but the numbers remain. And when they took those numbers, they realized that they were a calculator for calculating the next time that the earth would take what's called a processional shift. So every 26,000 years, the earth, it, it, takes a little bit longer of an elliptical orbit than before. It's a natural cycle. But what that causes is you to go out from the sun a little bit further. And so you don't have as warm a winter or spring and you get these many ice ages, sometimes big ice ages. But these numbers appear to show that not only along with that sort of natural uh, cycle, you get periodic cataclysms from incoming meteors and asteroids. And I believe that the Anunnaki who formed all of these ancient kingdoms around the world left that sequence of numbers, knowing that sooner or later humanity would begin to realize that those numbers were there and that they meant something far deeper than just simple oral histories around the, around the world. What's um, interesting is that, you know, like Jason from Archaics, he talks about that there's this phenomenon that hits us like uh, every 138 years. He's he's a chronologist, you know, and he's pinpointed it to like, it, it's like he said every 138 years he has it documented. Something like hits, it's not a total cataclysm, but it'll right. hit like certain parts of certain areas and devastate them. And it's very weird. It's He calls it the Phoenix phenomenon. Interesting. I, yeah, I would like to look into that. That's, that is fascinating. Um, I, I think that this numbers and the way that they had it encoded in all of these ancient cultures uh, goes back to the global flood. Yeah, the and, big one. The big right, one, right? And, and them leaving a way for us to calculate perhaps when another one would occur. Um, and, do you and, think the first flood was brought on by the Anunnaki, maybe? Or do you think that was that they knew it was going to happen and they kind of just rolled with it? And they just let it happen. It's one or the other, and it's not really clear in either writing. Um, we know that in the Book of Enoch, there's a conversation between the, you know, the fallen ones, and they're basically saying, did we do the right thing? You know, we're going to be here forever, you know, and, and they're sort of lamenting their decision at some point, um, which I also found really fascinating. It's very human-like behavior. And, um, you know, people always ask, they're like, well, if the Anunnaki were alien, how come they look so human, right? Um, even though they come from a planet that's supposedly here that was here in our solar system. And I recently came across some scientific uh, papers that were written stating that probably all intelligent life has to evolve to be bipedal with hands that can manipulate material objects and stuff like that. And that would account for human, every, you know, these yeah, beings. Yeah, you, yeah, because that would only make sense, right? Right. And, you know, it says they, they made us in their image. Well, there you go. They made us to look enough like them that the men found our, the human women to be beautiful and wanted to mate with them which led to all of this in the beginning, you know, to yeah, begin also, with. And, uh, something to back up what you're saying, like, but the reason, another reason why I think a lot of things would be human, and this is kind of a joke, but can you imagine a praying mantis flying a spaceship? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, supposedly that's what we have though, right? I mean, the people say they see praying mantis aliens during abduction scenarios. They do. In, they say they see them in lab coats or whatever, or robes, and they're, they're flying spaceships. Like, you would think that they would have to have some kind of, maybe they'd be more a little bit human or, or something. They, could, they would have to have hands, right? I, I, don't, I don't think that that would work, right? 
Yeah, but the, you know, these abductees always see them in the company of the gray aliens, which are, you know, very human-like. Although, yeah. when you get into that research, it appears the gray aliens are really a type of biological robot. Yeah. And that, and that yeah. these these, you know, bug-looking creatures appear to be master geneticists. They are at, heavy at work at some sort of genetic harvesting program is what the abductee phenomenon really shows. And I, you, know, you know what? I saw you did research on this, and I'm so glad you brought this up because I wanted to ask you about this. Like, yeah. I loved your research on the alien abduction phenomenon because I, I I've think... been studying it for a while, and like I thought you came to really good conclusions. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, and, and I'm still theorizing about it. I mean, it's it is the most not only the most disturbing but the most puzzling and also the most important because like i I, I could say this all the time like i interview a lot of contactees and i believe them and everything but the one thing that we have proof of is that the abduction phenomenon is happening and if that is so then that's the most important thing to humanity because that means we're not alone that there's contact with something else for sure right exactly and you know just a few weeks ago they were running newspaper articles, uh, mainstream, talking about the Pentagon's OSAP program, which studied the paranormal aspects of the UFO program, which was the ATIP program. And she, one of the main things that they listed, which is in these newspaper articles and told to Congress, was uh, unexpected pregnancy. <laughs> I saw that. I couldn't believe Did it. You see that? Yeah. So, I mean, when they mention something like that in the mainstream press, that's them trying to get people used to the idea. And, yeah. you know, just what last night, or yeah, I think it was last night or the night before, there's a special on the Travel Channel featuring Whitley Strieber, the most famous abductee, ran for, you know, a full two hours. And it was fascinating. I mean, they talked, they played his tapes. They talked all about the, you know, the phenomenon. And it, when you have like a, you know, the travel channel running something that is that in your face about the phenomenon to the general public, I think that's really telling. I, I said this before, I, I was moving and I never really watched much TV. I'm usually on the internet, but I, I didn't have internet for a couple of days, just on my phone. And you know what it's like when you just have internet on your phone, like, Right. Not, you know, so I turned on the travel channel and I was watching UFO Witness and I yes. was like, holy shit. I was like, they're covering the exact same things I cover on my podcast. I'm talking about like some of the same people I've had on my show are on there and they're talking wow. about the same things I talk about. And not just me, like, you know, it's all the things that we're all talking about that, like, you know, me, all the, all the podcasts, you know, people who are interviewing, interviewing people in the phenomena. It's like, they're, they're maybe, I don't know if they're taking ideas from creators or, you know, because like, it, it would seem so though, like maybe they're watching some of the bigger podcasts, like, and because a yeah, lot of people yeah. do the same pod, a lot of, you know, they do the podcast circuit. They'll go to this, you know, because people, you know, what I'm trying to say, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I can, I can even provide a little more insight on that because I thought the same thing. Um, in fact, I <laughs> there were a couple instances where I was just like, oh my god, you know. But the female investigator on the show, her name's Melissa Tittle. She is my former producer at Gaia Productions. Oh, so, wow. So she knows all your secrets. She knows all of my research, but she's also an extremely accomplished and intelligent investigator. Like I was I'm blown away with how intelligent she is. And I, I was on her series, which was the number one hit on Gaia. I mean, it had 10, 10 million viewers. Um, wow. Yeah. Which was ancient civilizations. And I was on that for three seasons. Um, so I did 36 episodes of that. Speaking of uh, September 24th, 25th, I will be at the uh, Ancient Civilizations Convention in Boulder, Colorado, um, at the Gaia Event Center, and I'll be doing a one-hour talk basically on what you and I are talking about. I'll be presenting the antediluvian pre-flood origins of the ancient mystery schools. 
I, I don't know if you got a chance to meet this guy yet, but he's someone who like one of the, he's one of the reasons why I started my podcast. I have his books and um, he, you know, he's in that crew with Billy Carson and Rex Bear from Leak Project. And who I'm talking about is Matt LaCroix. He recently oh, yeah. got hired by Gaia. And uh, I've been following his research for a while. I think he does. He followed in the footsteps of Gerald Clark. I, I'm sure you remember who Gerald was. And like, you know, like yep. I, 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 I hope you get a chance to meet him because like you guys would really mesh well with like what you talk about, you know? Yeah, I've not met him. I've, I've met Billy Carson a few times because he was on Ancient Civilizations too. And yeah. I've, you know, I've met like Grant Hancock and a few of those guys. Um, which is really Billy's such a nice guy, though. I, I think he, like, he's speaking like Grant, at the convention. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. He's speaking at the convention, so I'm bound to see him. Oh, that's awesome. I was going to say, it seems like Graham doesn't want to get into the gods much, whereas Billy and Matt will, and you will. Yeah. Like some of those researchers, like, won't go past the. He won't. Yeah, he won't. And in fact, he, I have to say, he disappointed me in the magicians of the gods because right about page 380 he makes a, a statement about the watchers and how they must have just been some sort of advanced uh, cavemen type people <laughs> i was like are you kidding and it's because you know he's part of that mainstream scholarly world he's always craved acceptance from these mainstream scientists you know like dr robert shock uh that that's been on so many different documentaries and so Brian many Forrester, like people like him right and i think he's just he he knows but i think he's afraid to say so yeah i think i think he's afraid of losing his credibility in the minds of those scientists i i believe so too it's like once you reach a certain level because it's the mainstream doesn't want it out right it's like it's, right. like, it's like the biggest hidden secret like and and um there's all types of um clues to it as to like you know like like why the pope um where's the fish you know that yeah. fish has like ancient historical symbol right it does you know and that goes back to the anunnaki and to uh the, the seven sages or the seven oannes as they were called in in ancient samaria who also were claimed to have taught mankind the arts of civilization it's a theme that goes on and on i'll tell you it's fascinating because in ancient times to be considered to be divine or royal, you had to be seen as coming from the ocean, as coming from the sea. The sea was seen as sort of like a another, uh, you know, type of realm, a divine realm of some kind. And they saw space as another kind of ocean. They didn't know. They just thought it was another ocean out there. Um, and it's interesting because this fish symbolism goes all the way from ancient samaria and the fish-headed gods which is what the pope's hat is right um all the way into uh the tradition of jesus and his family right so during the time of jesus there were 1300 messianic cults all of them had a messiah at their center and all of them yes all every single one of them had a mother named mary and why is that? Because the word mar in Latin means ocean or sea. And here was the son of the sea, a symbol of divinity, right? And it's that important to them. That's how important this whole symbolism was at that time. And well, can it, I ask it, you an important question? I think this is one of the most important questions, too. Do we have proof? I have people that come on here and argue yes, and then some people argue no, but do you think we have proof that Jesus actually existed? I know um, people say, you know, it's like a very divided question, you know? It is a really divided question. I would have to say that the people who came after Jesus, and what I'm talking about are like the the, the European people in the 12th hundreds the 1300s the 1400s like climbing of alexandria and and uh right the, the christian mystics right the right and you know and at the priory of zion the very first templar knights who ended up uh taking the temple mount and then they excavated underneath it i think they must have found something that to them proved that there was this existence that he was a real person you know uh at the yeah. time 
because like um, if you take like his facts like it seems like they use those the rome used those facts like then they were the same for like mithra krishna dionysus all that they were all like born of a virgin yeah, resurrected died all, all the facts are the same right so it's they like are. maybe he was a different person or a real teacher you know i think he was a real spirit because it's weird like when people i have people that come on my show and they say they have paranormal occurrences and they call out to jesus and it works so there has yeah. to, if that's really working that has to have some kind of power to it right it does you know and and you know belief itself has power yeah it, oh, it, yeah that makes sense it, it really does um but but that being said you know i think that there's a lot of of um historical things that sort of point to the fact that that he was a real person let's take for instance the story of his birth right who comes to his birth the wise men three wise men they're not called wise men in the original text they're called magi they were three magi from persia where does the word magi come from it comes from the word magic these guys were a magic practicing group that went back into ancient Irani, what we call Iran today, right? Yeah. These Magi, it has already been shown, um, were ancient astrologers. They had the knowledge of astrology, which I think also goes back to that interaction. And it was they who had this star prophecy that their king would be born to a star alignment, not the king of the Hebrews. They were, they were on a pilgrimage to find their king that was supposed to be born under this star. You know, what, that, it's so interesting. I had Ralph Ellis on my show. Uh-huh. And, um, he said that, too. He thinks that it, he was that Jesus was actually the king of Odessa at some point or the king of. Sarah. I've seen that. I've seen that book. I, that I don't know about. I do think it's interesting, that king of Odessa theory. But I do know this, that at the age of 13 until the age of 33, Jesus goes missing completely. There is no record at all of where he went or what he did during that time period. Now, how long does it take or took a Magi of Persia to finish their training? 20 years. The exact 20 years that he was gone. I find that fascinating. And then he comes back and he has these special abilities, right? Um, he's able to perform what people think are, are miracles. And it's interesting because, you know, you brought up the idea that of all these other godheads like Mithras and, and Krishna and all of them, right? They all were born of a virgin and they all um, end up being resurrected, etc. And Jesus says, I'm the logos made carnate. I'm the word made flesh, meaning that he had become so powerful that he could now embody this long-running mythology of these characters. You know what I mean? That makes sense. I like that. Yeah. And so to me, there's not this incongruence at all. I I think that people are, are not realizing the interconnections that are there. You know, they're not seeing the forest because of the trees. And and there probably is proof in the bloodline too, right? Right. And, you know, there's a lot of, of uh, for instance, in the Bible, it's known in ancient Jewish culture that only the groom poured the wine at a wedding. Only the groom. And there's the wedding of Canaan where Jesus has his mother, Mary, go get another jug of wine so that he can pour another round at this wedding. Now, if he's not the husband at this wedding, why is he pouring the wine when that's the only person who does it in the culture? Point number two in ancient Jewish culture, if you were caught teaching any sort of religious teaching and you were not a married rabbi you were stoned to death on the spot right then and there on the spot and so there's a lot of indications there's the nag Hammadi scrolls who talk about how jesus used to kiss mary magdalene often on her mouth 
Yeah, I had a uh, Joanna Kujawa on my show. She's a brilliant. Um, she wrote a book about Mary Magdalene, and she said that there are scripts that say <laughs> that Peter would say, "Teacher, why do you, why do you kiss her?" And we laughed about it. We were like, because he was in love with her. Like, it's it's kind right. of like a dead giveaway, right? Right, right. And so from there, you've got these ancient uh, historical accounts and tradition in the south of France talking about how Mary Magdalene showed up there in a small boat with Joseph of Arimathea, who was Jesus's uncle, who was the man who, uh, you know, had him buried in his private garden. Joseph of Arimathea was one of the wealthiest merchants in all the Middle East. People don't realize Jesus had this super rich uncle, but he did. And he had trading routes as far north as Ireland. Oh, wow. Isn't that insane? So after the crucifixion, he takes Mary, who's pregnant at that time, and she's got another daughter. And this daughter is known later as Sarah the Egyptian. That's what the French people called her because of her dark skin. Showed up there in a boat. And today there are black Madonnas in all of the church in in the south of France. And they are depictions of Sarah the Egyptian. Well, right. you know what's interesting about that is when I interviewed Ralph, he told me that the Israelis are actually, the ancient Israelis were actually the Egypts because that the the they were Egyptian because of the um uh, what do they call that the Exodus they they were they were actually you know in Egyptians that left Egypt and they but that's a theory you know but that right. explain- well and when you trace all those tribes back they they really all derived from the sumerian people and they slowly kind of divide out from there you know yeah because abraham semitic- was a sumerian right 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 into the and then they sort of divide into the semitic groups and the mesopotamian groups and and so on so yeah you know you could definitely make that that argument i suppose but um the, the last question I have for you if, if, uh, is uh, we are going to relate this, how, how it relates to cryptids. Like uh, if we, because I wanted to ask you about that, like, because uh, it's so interesting how people are finding sightings of Bigfoot and Dogman, and there's a lot of shows about it right now. And like, I mean, are you finding evidence that these are actually existing? And uh, what what are your thoughts on all that and how, how they exist, maybe in another dimension or? Yeah, you know, absolutely. In fact, I wrote a whole book about this too, and it's called Bigfoot Unleashed. And it chronicles my two decades in cryptozoology, where we actually collected DNA from one of these creatures that went into the Sasquatch Genome Project, something you and I should probably discuss on a whole other show. Oh, yeah. But the DNA indicated very strongly that these were a chimera that these creatures were in fact a artificial construction of somebody or something. And I believe that those ancient Sumerian tablets, when it comes to Bigfoot, are describing with Enkidu uh, these creatures. I also, really if you read Sitchin's The Lost Book of Enki, and, yeah. um, Enki traps these these creatures and um in the beginning of it and he's like wondering he's like oh these are a puzzling bunch or I, I i can't describe it word for word but he he traps them before he makes humans and it seems like he has these bigfoots in cages now what's interesting about the lost book of enki is Sitchin doesn't give any sources for that like and gerald clark said that he thinks that Sitchin and I, you know I, I know Sitchin gets a lot of crap but i, I still think it's interesting because i think he was such a pioneer but Gerald said that he thinks Sitchin might have stumbled. He had sources that go back to, you know, ancient Babylon. And he thinks Sitchin might have stumbled on, um, it was called the the golden, um, it was a golden thing of Sapar, um, a golden chest, a golden chest of Sapar. And then that might have been some kind of cuneiform tablets where he was able to, you know, put together the lost book of Anki. I don't know. how, How intriguing. That really is intriguing. I'll I'll tell you this, I, and I recount this, I'll finish up with this, um, and I, I recounted this in my book, Bigfoot Unleashed, and I talk all about the chimera theory, the DNA, everything that, that occurred. But there's an, there's an old Paiute Indian tale that was chronicled by an early pioneer, and he came across a group of Paiutes, and they told him a story that, um, well, and they had one of these creatures, so they told him that there was a crazy bear, 
right, that they were taken care of. And he had to see this thing. And he goes to a little hut that they have and he looks inside and there's this human-like creature. It's covered in long, dark fur and it's apparently sick or something because they're having to feed it. And he asked him about it. He was like, where did this thing come from, you know? And they tell him that a fake moon or a false moon descended from the sky and deposited three crazy bears into the forest. And this was one of them. That now, is so fascinating. Isn't that crazy? Now, when you look at the abduction phenomenon, there are countless witnesses, abductees, who claim that they were taken to a forest environment and they saw these creatures in the company of the gray aliens that took them. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, I know you, here's a link between us all, like between me, you, Lon Strickler. Um, I've had Stan Gordon on my show and Lon's had Stan on my, his show. Like Stan's from my area. He's from West, 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 oh, Western Pennsylvania. That's where I'm from, from Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. But he, Stan talks about all these people that call into, he has, he's had a UFO hotline since the sixties, you know, he, he investigated right. Kecksburg and right. he talks about people who see Bigfoot with UFOs and Bigfoot with orbs. And these people mm-hmm. don't want any recognition. They just want to get their story out, you know, which I think is fascinating because I think that's a telltale of evidence, right? It is, you know, um, and I, I, I put this in one of my YouTube videos that in my YouTube channels, just paranormal intelligence agency, but, uh, when I was talking about this UFO connection, one of the very first uh, blue book cases was the Presque Isle incident in which two women claimed to have had a close encounter with a UFO and a Bigfoot simultaneously, and it was investigated by the CIA. That Presque Isle is right up here in Erie, Pennsylvania. Right. It sure is. Yeah, look at the Presque Isle incident. It is... Uh, it is a perfect example of the two phenomenon being related to one another. Oh, I'm going to look that up when we're done here. Thank you. This was so awesome. I, I have to thank you so much. Like this was one of the most fascinating conversations I've had in a long time. <laughs> thank, so, you. thank you. I appreciate it. I know I enjoyed it too. But so anytime. Um, it's great when we can relate on subjects and have a convers- intelligent conversation. It's so much fun. Can you tell everybody where to find your books and if you have a website or your YouTube, all that stuff? Sure. Um, you can do a Google search, just Jack Carey, Bigfoot or Paranormal, and a lot of my stuff will come up. But my books are available on Amazon. Um, my website is paraintelagency.com, and that's where I publish a lot of my more in-depth reports on paranormal phenomenon. Um, you can always reach me on that website, and we have a Facebook page. So. And, and can you send me all the links so I can put them in the description? I'll probably put this out tomorrow. Okay. So that'll, you know, oh, yeah. yeah. Not a problem. I'll get them over to you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Anytime. All right. Have a good night. All right.